follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Hi, this is Carol Bosser. Welcome to the show today. With me is a very dear colleague and friend of mine, Gretchen Jennings. Now, Gretchen really doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, Many of you probably know that she's been a museum educator, an administrator, uh, an exhibition project director, and she worked at the Smithsonian Institution for almost 15 years. Uh, She is a senior staff member on the traveling exhibition, The Invention at Play and Psychology, uh, both of which received AAM Awards of Excellence. And she is currently the editor of the Exhibitionist, the Journal of the National Association for Museums, exhibitions, also known as NAME, and Gretchen is also uh, a very avid blogger at uh, Museum Commons. Gretchen, welcome. I'm so glad you're on the show today. Thanks very much, Carol. It's, It's great to be here. Gretchen, you have been blogging about a very intriguing subject uh, called the Empathetic Museum. And I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit uh, just to, about how, how that uh, blog came about? Uh, sure. I, um, I guess the, the idea uh, for the Empathetic Museum really came out of an earlier idea that I've I've thought about for a long time. I've been involved in cross-cultural discussions um, for a long time and and very interested in intercultural communication. And it occurred to me quite a long time ago that um, institutions, museums, like people, have a kind of a body language. In other words, um, we may be saying something that we want to communicate to someone, but if our face or our gestures... um, uh, are different, then then we really are communicating on two different levels, what we're saying and then what people are perceiving in our face or our gestures. And it seemed to me that in, in museums, I think today museums, pretty much all museums everywhere, want to be accessible. They want to be diverse. They want to be welcoming. And they often say that in their uh, mission statements and in their uh, their various goals. But Sometimes the way museums operate, I think, belies that or says to people of color or perhaps people who have disabilities that the museum is not really with them. Um, Some examples of this would be that, for example, um, if you walk into a museum, uh, despite the fact that it might say that it wants diversity, if people notice that the only people of color are uh, people who are the cleaning people or the guards, and everyone else, uh, the docents, the staff is white, uh, if the board is not diverse, if in the photographs and advertising that the museum uh, uh, puts out. There are no families of color. It simply shows kind of the the traditional family uh, uh, visiting the museum. Then I think often people who may not be in the mainstream look at this and they say to themselves, this place really isn't for me. Uh, maybe maybe there's free admission. Maybe there's a special show about uh, African-American culture or whatever. But 
it's not sustained. The museum itself is not um, transformed from within. And so uh, the idea of, of uh, body language in a museum, um, that a museum might operate differently from what it, the way it says it wants to, um, led me to the idea of empathy, because I think um, an empathetic person is someone who is able to intuit the feelings of others has a has a sense of of himself or herself that um, really connects with other people's and and enables the person to um, intuit the feelings and the attitudes and the ideas of others. I think on an institutional level, a museum that has no staff from the community that has. Uh, very few board members from the community that isn't really connected from the inside out to the community, it's very difficult for that museum to sense what the community needs, and therefore um, it's difficult for that kind of museum to be empathetic. So that term kind of says for me uh, a museum where perhaps the body language and the overt statements are a bit out of sync. I see. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, as you were talking, I was thinking we, as, as parents and as, as caregivers to young people, I think we probably try to teach empathy, uh, whether we're a teacher, whether we're a parent. Do you think that, that uh, museums in the same way are teachable? Can they learn how to become empathetic? I think they can. I'm hoping that the um, my blogs perhaps are helping this. I, I think it's a it's a topic that um, all of a sudden I'm seeing written about in other museum blogs, in other uh, areas of museum work. So I think that it's a it's empathy in general seems to be an emotion whose whose day has come. And and for example, I'm uh, seeing in in uh, blogs about design, both design, physical design of museums and also design of websites, the idea that one has to start with, with empathy. I think actually that prototyping, prototyping an exhibition, testing it out with visitors before you finalize it and put it on the floor, that, that's an empathetic uh, gesture. That's an empathetic activity. So I think that... Um, that museums can learn it, and I think that as it is discussed more and more in the museum in museum discourse, that perhaps more museums will think about what are the um, the inner the um, the core policies that that we want to develop within our institution that are going to kind of transform us from the inside out. So yes, I think it can be learned and taught. <laughs> well, that's 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 very encouraging. Um, you've you've talked a little bit about uh, some examples of of what makes an empathetic museum or or what doesn't make an empathetic museum. You were talking about uh, if people walk into the museum and they don't see themselves in yeah. the museum uh, is, a, is, is a good example. Um, what, are, what are some of the other ways that a museum could you know, sort of walk the walk, I suppose, would be one way of saying it? Well, I think um, one of the things that, that, I, um, that I think is important about empathy, that this is a definition that I've taken just from, from Merriam-Webster, is that um, Empathy is, is an action or an emotion whereby you sense what another is going through without necessarily being told. Uh, you know that person well enough or, or you're, you're experienced in life enough that you somehow know without the person having to hit you over the head or to say, um, I'm feeling bad or I'm feeling great or what other. And so I think that... Um, if you can't, for example, hire uh, a great many people who are diverse, even something like having community advisory groups, if you're planning an exhibition uh, on, a, on a topic that the museum itself is not totally familiar with, then I think having community groups that can help to advise you on various topics 
or on symbols that you might use um, is very important. Um, I think that we can often um, badly misuse what I call cultural symbols. I remember um, this was probably 15 or 20 years ago. Um, a museum in Canada wanted to do an exhibition on its very uh, large African collection, and it wanted to show that the collection had really been um, developed through colonialism it, it you know it was it was a very well meaning exhibition that wanted to uh look at at colonialism critique it and also look at its own collection and say we came by these through various aspects of british colonialism um the, the the exhibition opened, and there was a great deal of criticism from the Afro-Caribbean community in, in the city where the exhibition was held. And part of the reason was that the museum had not really consulted very much with that community before it selected the objects that it wanted to display and also before it um, wrote the text. And so one of the striking things that really caused a lot of problems in the community was that I saw this exhibition. When you went into the exhibition, the entire ceiling of the first room, it was a small room, was covered with a union jack. And it was, oh, it was extremely striking and attention-getting, but I think it, it sent the wrong message to the Afro-Caribbean community, which had been colonized by Britain, because it was such a, a powerful symbol. I, I, I don't think a, a Holocaust museum would display a Nazi swastika to attract people. It might have it inside the museum, but it wouldn't put something like that in a prominent place that might be the first thing that visitors would see, because I think... Uh, within a Holocaust museum, there probably would be enough people that would understand that the impact of something like a swastika would be um, repugnant and, and possibly revolting and, and off-putting rather than attracting. And I think the same thing happened um, in, in this case with the Union Jack. It it sent a message somehow that the museum was perhaps glorifying uh, this flag, rather than um, holding it up for examination, which is really what the museum wanted to do. And I think that that, that can often happen, that we, um, we don't know enough to, uh, about what we don't know, and so we misuse powerful symbols that, that may have to be used quite carefully. I think you've raised a really important uh, point, uh, Gretchen, and it's and it's one thing that I try to keep in in mind as well. You know, we're we're both exhibit developers, uh, and it, it it's the unintended consequence of the object, or as in in your your case, you're talking about a symbol. I mean, the same thing could be said about uh, you know a, a civil war, uh, the stars and stars and bars flag flying in in various places in the South. Uh, it. It is such a uh, a symbol of such great meaning that uh, we forget that that uh, the symbol or the object itself is going to overshadow everything else, no matter how much text, no matter how many videos, no matter how what else we we put there uh, uh, that we will we can miscommunicate and I think it really does go to the power of the object it does, and I think you know this is would be another example, I think, of body language. The, the museum, in, in the case of the, using the Union Jack, all of its publicity and, and everything on the walls and what it really wanted to communicate was a critique of colonialism, but the, the use of, of that symbol was so powerful, it, it more or less drowned out what the museum was trying to convey. And so I think, I think the metaphor of body language is something to keep in mind because so often it's something that we're not aware of. We, someone may say, how are you doing? And, and you answer, fine. And you're not aware that you've perhaps grimaced or, or just a small face, facial uh, feature somehow belies what you're saying. And so I think often this kind of thing is really, it's not intentional, it's not conscious, but it's all the more powerful because of that. 
I I I think you're right, and and right before we go to break, I just want want to uh, say that I think we sometimes forget that we are human uh, animals and we do communicate much more through our uh, nonverbal cues than our verbal cues. Uh-huh. And, and, uh-huh. and as an institution, we need to remember that as well. Right. So, I, I absolutely agree. So uh, let's, let's uh, just, we're going to take a break here for a moment. Uh, this is Carol Bossert and you're listening to The Museum Life and we will be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You're tuned in to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, this is Carol Bossert, and uh, you're listening in to the Museum Life. Today I'm talking with uh, Gretchen Jennings. Uh, Gretchen uh, blogs quite a bit at uh, Museum Commons, and she has coined a phrase that uh, I think is really gathering quite quite a, uh, a following, judged by the uh, the response on her blogs, and that is this idea of the empathetic museum. Uh, just as people can be empathetic, museums uh, need to be and can be uh, empathetic. Uh, and during the break, uh, Gretchen and I were talking a little bit about uh, her experiences with, you know, the, we uh, about museums that can be empathetic on a day-to-day basis, but museums who really can be empathetic uh, in a crisis. And uh, Gretchen, do you want to uh, share with us a little bit about your your experiences and observations, say for what the Boston Marathon you were telling me about? Yes. Well, I I have to say first that I think that the Children's Museum in Boston, if, if I were to have a model of an empathetic museum, I think that the Children's Museum in Boston would, would be my model because um, one of the things that they exemplify is um, is the everydayness of their of their empathy. And and I think then that made them very ready uh, to respond when the when the crisis came with the marathon bombings. Um, one of the things that I've talked about with a number of colleagues is the fact that 
um, empathy in an institution is not, it's really used in a metaphorical sense, and it's not about being touchy-feely or necessary do, necessarily doing exhibitions about poverty or, or people who are suffering. It really involves um, policy decisions made from the top down regarding how the museum's going to operate on a daily basis in terms of its staffing, its marketing, um, its choice of, of, of uh, exhibitions, its community outreach, and so forth. And uh, one of the things I think that, that's very interesting about the Children's Museum, which I found out after talking about it uh, after the, the Boston Marathon bombings, was that for many years the museum has had contacts, for example, with the local police, with uh, local media, radio stations, with the local hospitals, so that um, when the marathon bombings happened, uh, that museum as well as others, but that museum in particular, was really able to respond. Um, generally, I was impressed overall by the way that museums in Boston um, really uh, took what happened into their own missions and adapted. For example, um, the day after, there were uh, several art museums that announced uh, that they were open for quiet reflection and they were open for free. And this, I saw this on Twitter, I saw it on Facebook. It, it was picked up by NPR. It, it, it went all over. There were other museums, for example, the aquarium that closed out of respect um, for the victims. So museums had different ways of responding, but they, I think the most important thing was they acknowledged that they were in the community and a part of the community and they wanted to somehow connect with what had happened in the community. With the Children's Museum, um, they immediately discovered, I think one of the families that was hardest hit with a parent and a child who had been uh, killed, they were people that the the people at the museum knew personally, but immediately they contacted the children's hospital where all the children who were injured had been taken, and they found out that the kids would could really use some activity packets and just some things to, to do and to keep them occupied. So immediately the museum put together a bunch of packets for the 10 or 12 children who were in the hospital. Uh, they issued a, an advisory that was put out by the police and also on, on local radio stations, how to talk to your child about something like this happening in the community in general or if your child's friends were involved. Um, so they immediately, they didn't have to make these contacts uh, quickly or try to get in touch with, with uh, various groups, they already were very embedded in the Boston community, and so they could use those contacts to immediately um, make their expertise something that could um, comfort and offer help to the community. And uh, so I think that, that that's a really great example of how um, everyday empathy and connection with the community can translate into um, immediate assistance when something like the marathon bombings happens. You know what that what strikes me, Gretchen, is another that this is an example of an institution who allowed their empathy for children which uh -huh. is their, bus their business, uh -huh. to lead them to creative ways of addressing the needs of the community. Right. I mean, th you know, they aren't, they're a children's museum. They, right. They're in the business of creating exhibits and programs for young children. But, you know, some of those programs probably do involve pulling together materials. What they've done in is use that uh, for uh, to create packets that go back into the community, uh -huh. and uh, of of uh, we we need to be mission driven institutions, but we shouldn't be so focused on our mission that we don't allow our our empathy to shine through. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think the other aspect of empathy that I think is important is imagination. Uh, it, 
you you have to have a, a an imagination to put yourself in the place of other people. And I think institutions have to have enough imagination to really know and sense that they're important to their communities. They're, they they do have a duty to preserve and, and uh, display and educate about their collections, but they're more than that. They're, they are often prominent buildings in the community. Their directors maybe sit on boards in the community. Um, they, they're part of the infrastructure of their community. And so when the community is affected in something that's beyond their collections, um, I think museums need to have the imagination to kind of step up to the plate. Um, another example of this is um, during Hurricane Sandy. Um, a few days after the hurricane, um, I began thinking, I wonder what's going on with – have museums been hurt by this? Were, were museums in downtown New York flooded? Um, you know, were they, did they lose power? Are their collections suffering? And so I began going on Twitter, and I began kind of searching around uh, on various museum um, websites and museum organizations, and I wasn't I was finding stuff on Twitter. I wasn't finding a lot um, either from museums who were um, affected. And then, of course, I thought, well, you know, if they don't have electricity or if their cell phones have run out, they're not able to communicate. So it took, it took really a few days. But one of the things that I began to notice right away was tweets from the New York Public Library. And the New York Public Library was saying um, our – you know, our, most of our branches are down, but as they come up and as our branches um, get electricity, we're going to open them, and we invite you to come in. Come in to get warm. Come in to charge your cell phone. Come in to get water. I mean, these were all things, this is not what a library usually does, but these were all things that people in the local library area uh, needed because, if you remember, um, people were without power, without heat, without housing, without warmth. It was, it was cold. So I thought this was just a great um, extension of, of the library's mission into the community. And one of the, the most empathetic things I thought they did, I mean, it's not a huge deal, but they forgave library loans. <laughs> and I thought that was just such a dear thing that they would say, look, don't worry about your books being missing or whatever. Um, and that took, I think, a little bit of imagination and, and connection with their own communities. Um, Conversely, I didn't see a lot going on even after museums had gotten up and running. Um, not too many of them um, really extended themselves, in my opinion, into their communities in the same way. Uh, yes, I, you know, I, I, I think that that, that, may, uh, that may be true. I, I, on the other hand, I remember uh, a colleague of mine who was at the Louisiana State Museum uh, after Katrina and saying how very devastating it was even for the staff of the museum. This is very uh, true. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so so I you know, I, I think that the the people the people side of the equation is is always very, very challenging. Uh -huh. uh, it does though, um, although I don't want to get us too far off off track, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that it also reminds it should remind every institution that they need to have a disaster plan. Yeah. And that when things are calm are the times to be, you know, perhaps thinking creatively about, you know, the day after, after, right. after, after the building is fine, after you find out that the entire staff is fine, then you can begin to to put into practice uh, what your uh, what what your plan was. Um, right, right, and also begin to, to to add to your disaster plan something that that uh, looks out and 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 sees whether there are, uh, I don't know, ways to send people into shelters to work with, with families and kids or ways to offer your parking lot as a place for um, food collection or, or uh, clothing collection.
collection, distribution centers. In other words, um, maybe look at the resources that the museum does have and whether those, um, if they're not being used right away for the museum because people can't get to the museum to visit, are there other ways that the museum might be able to use its resources to um, show the community that, again, it, it feels itself to be a part of the community? Those are those are very very good good points. Uh, I I think as well, uh, and it and it really does underscore. I think that this what you've been saying, which is museums are a part of their community, just as libraries are, and uh-huh. perhaps their community is in a metropolitan area. Perhaps their community, you know, for the Smithsonian Institution is the the community is the nation. Um, I think it's it's been very interesting, um, frustrating. I think for both of us being in the Washington D.C. area to have lived uh, through the past couple of weeks with so many tourists coming into their nation's capital and not being able to get to the museums because the government was shut down. Absolutely. Uh, I was glad to see that the Washington Post ended up uh, publishing a page of alternatives. Uh, It it gave um, some of the smaller museums and maybe the lesser-known museums um, a little bit of publicity uh, and encouraged visitors, you know, if you can't go see the the, uh, National Gallery, there's the Phillips Museum and the Corcoran Museum for Art, and if you can't go to the Museum of American History, um, I can't remember now what the alternative was, but there there were some private locations that people could go to to, you know, to perhaps um, uh, uh, at least uh, make it so that their visit to Washington wasn't wasn't totally wasted. And that that's another thing, I guess, too, with with uh, Washington. There are all of these other museums outside the Smithsonian that maybe don't get as much as much acknowledgement. So at least this had the the good effect of, of allowing them to get a little bit of publicity. Yes, I, I think you're right. Um, all right. Well, I think that this is a good place for us to take another little break. And this is uh, Carol Bossert. You're listening to the American, or I'm sorry, the American Life, uh, the Museum Life. And of course, you can always reach me to continue on with the conversation at carolbossertservices.com and uh, look for Gretchen's uh, blog, uh, the Museum Commons, and uh, carry on the conversation there as well. We'll be back in a minute. do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to radio show at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, this is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to The Museum Life. I'm here with Gretchen Jennings, uh, a museum professional, uh, former um, uh, project director, exhibit project director at the Smithsonian, and uh, uh, currently the uh, editor-in-chief of The Exhibitionists, which is the journal of the National Association for Museums Exhibition called NAME. And it's a wonderful resource for those of us who are interested in creating three-dimensional experiences that communicate with visitors and are empathetic, which is the topic of what uh, that uh, Gretchen and I have been talking about today. And you know, Gretchen, this is this has really been a lively conversation, and I love the idea of of thinking about institutions as being empathetic organizations, uh, uh, using that as a metaphor. Uh, I've but I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, we've been talking about this topic for as long as I've been in the museum profession. This idea that museums need to be more responsive to their, their communities. And, um, and some museums do a good job of it and some museums don't. And why is it, do you think, that we have to still keep talking about this topic or maybe we should just raise up our hands and say, oh, we've talked about it to death and it's over. Well, we have talked about it to death, but I just hate to think that it's over because I think it's such an important um, important aspect of museums in the 21st century uh, to become more, more accessible, more open, more available. Um, so uh, perhaps one thing is... Uh, the whole question of diversity is something that's been been discussed for a long, long time. Um, I'd say at least 25 years when museums finally kind of woke up to the fact that they seem to be mostly white and mostly middle class, and 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 uh, their staff, their their boards, their visitors, and um, where were the other? Uh, half or whatever of the population, why why weren't they coming to our museums? And so, yes, there's been a lot of discussion of that, and, and, and we can get tired of it, but the issue is um, there's still these questions and still uh, um, a lack of attendance um, on, on the part of, of, of uh, people who aren't part of the, of the mainstream. One of the things that I think um, is maybe helping to broaden the conversation these days is that there's been more of an opening up of discussion of other kinds of diversity. For example, the whole area of, of, of disability, uh, certainly uh, because of the the ADA laws and the, the Americans with Disability Act and, and um, those kinds of things, museums are much more uh, physically accessible today than they ever have been. But um, there's now a lot of discussion about uh, looking at the question of disability, uh, the role that it plays in our society, the fact that perhaps artists with disabilities are not necessarily, their disabilities are not necessarily seen as part of their, uh, their, their backstory. Uh, it, perhaps it's ignored. Um, so there's been a fair amount of discussion. Uh, Richard Sandel out of the uh, University of Leicester has done a great deal of writing about um, people with disabilities and kind of the history of how society has viewed people with disabilities and, and what that can say about current society and, and how museum exhibitions might um, 
address this issue in a more upfront way. A second area, I think, is the whole area of, of the LGBT community. This is an area that is frequently ignored, even though certainly in the history of art, we know that there are many, many artists uh, who are gay and lesbian, uh, many, many topics of pieces of art um, uh, look at uh, gay and lesbian roles, and yet these topics are very rarely brought to the front in museum exhibitions. Um, the, the recent exhibition, Hide Seek, uh, that was um, produced by the, the National Portrait Gallery, uh, looked at issues of gay and lesbian involvement in the arts. Uh, and I remember attending a symposium uh, related to that where um, gay and lesbian artists talked about the fact that they, they felt ignored um, both in terms of their of their work and also of their own kind of credibility within the art community. Uh, so I think that talking about um, empathy, talking about diversity, is a much broader kind of topic today than it used to be. It's not only uh, in relation to racial and cultural diversity, but also diversity uh, related to other dimensions of life, such as sexuality, uh, disability, and, and uh, um, other areas that are beyond uh, racial and cultural questions. I think that is very interesting, Gretchen. You're absolutely right. 25 years ago, we weren't thinking in terms of of either uh, uh, educational uh, educational challenges or um, uh, uh, gender gender identity, uh, and I'm sure there are many others. And it seems to me that that uh, by casting museums in this role of of being empathetic of sort of using a new vocabulary that we're also engaging a a new crop of museum uh museum professionals uh and and I think that that could be uh, could be very exciting. Um, here here I am at, at uh, nearing the the zenith of my career. I'm hoping that there are several people that perhaps I've mentored over the years that will take my place and move museums to an even uh, greater integration in into our society. And it, and I'm so thrilled that you've you've brought this topic up at at on a blog. I mean, 25 years ago, we didn't have such a thing. We didn't have that kind of, of uh, community, uh, an electronic community. And, and, uh, and I, I know you've, you've really touched, the, touched a chord here with all of the, uh, the conversations that are going on about your, uh, around your, your blog, the Museum Commons. Were you surprised about that? I was. I I, um, I started blogging after uh, a, a professional meeting a couple of years ago. I I was talking to a number of people at the meeting, and and we all felt that there were there were maybe things that were um, not being said at at this professional con- uh, conference. Um, topics that maybe were considered to be too delicate or or too controversial. And I also I I was just. Uh, retired then, and I also began to think, you know, there are a lot of people that maybe can't say in public what they would like to say because they need to be hired as as consultants or they need to stay in whatever job they're in, and they don't want to necessarily um, speak out of turn or, or in some way... Um, uh, uh, I hate to say bite the hands that, hand that feeds them because that sounds a little bit, uh, it, it sounds as though people are afraid. I don't know that they're afraid, but they people need to be careful and professional in their criticism of, of peers and of, and of institutions. And I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity. I'm retired. I'm, I'm not particularly um, doing uh, uh, other work. Uh, um, I, I can, I'm not beholden to anyone. I don't have anyone that I report to. Um, I checked it out with, with name in terms of the, the work that I do as editor, and they said, you know, as long as you um, uh, keep your blog separate and make clear that it's not a position of, of name, uh, we're happy for you to do it. And so I, I feel, and that's why I chose the word or the the phrase museum commons 
because I felt that maybe the blog could be a place where um, questions could be raised and discussed that I know museum colleagues would like to discuss, but um, they may not be able to put them forward in exactly uh, as as um, bald a way as I can. And um, and so uh, that's what I've tried to do, and that's why I've I've blogged about things like uh, like race, uh, like uh, sexual harassment in the museum, um, like uh, uh, the sometimes the relative powerlessness of museum educators vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the chain of authority within museums. I've, I've tried to pick topics that I think um, museum people care about but may not be able to talk as publicly about as they would like. Well, I'm so glad you have uh, because I, I I tend to agree with you. I think that uh, there there are very few times that we have an opportunity to be as as um, I was going to use the word blunt. I would get perhaps I want to say transparent. Uh -huh. uh, I, but I do think that as museum professionals, we are in a, a very distinct role because our public lives and our private lives can merge so very easily. You know, we're, mm -hmm. members of, we're members of the communities that we serve. Right. And uh, so that, that puts us in a, in a little bit of a, of a different position. Um, right. And right. I... I was I was going I know that you're also planning a program at the the next uh American Alliance of Museums uh conference and I was pleased that that you know this this idea of empathy is really getting legs for that so I was um were you were you surprised about uh your your the participation there as well I was and and also speaking of as you you were asking about younger professionals what was uh, what is nice about this proposal, and I don't think anyone knows yet which proposals have been accepted. But the the group that coalesced around doing a session on the empathetic museum um, was a group of, of um, varying levels of tenure in the museum community. Um, Janine Bryant, who works at the Levine uh, Museum of the New South, is a fairly new museum professional. She's going to talk a little bit about her museum, which is, I think, another really good example of an empathetic museum. Um, Margaret Middleton, who is a fairly um, uh, young um, exhibition developer uh, who has been working on developing um, exhibits that are um, accessible to families of all kinds, families with two mothers or two fathers or, or um, uh, various kinds of permutations. She's going to talk about her efforts to develop um, material and exhibitions that really uh, speak to a, a broad range of family audiences. Um, Dana uh, uh, Mitroff-Silver is someone who works on, uh, especially on web design through the process of design thinking, and that's a process that that very uh, specifically says it begins with empathy and with looking at, at what the community needs. Uh, Rainey Tisdale is another participant. She is a, um, a young woman working out of Boston, and she's trying to put together a, um, a memorial uh, that will commemorate the Boston Marathon bombings within a year on the anniversary of, of the bombing. So I, I think it's, uh, it's a group of people, whether or not our, our proposal is accepted, um, these are people, mo mostly people that are much younger than I am, who are uh, thinking about empathy and, and using it in their particular practice. And I, I'm very encouraged by that. Well, thank you, Gretchen. Thank you so much for continuing this conversation and uh, using new technologies and using a new vocabulary to encourage uh, new new professionals in the field to carry on uh, the conversation and move it in a new direction. It has been wonderful to have you on the show today. And of course, remember you can continue the conversation with with Gretchen uh, at her at her blog on Museum Commons. You can always reach me at 
carolbossertservices.com. And for the Museum Life, Carol Bossert, see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 